We've been looking at the seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation because, first of all, these letters, even though they've been written written to individual churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and so on, they are written to the whole church. Jesus has something to say to his whole church, not just at this period of time that they were written somewhere around 90 AD to 180, somewhere around there, but rather they are written to Christ's whole church, to all of us. He sends these letters to churches in the first century by which he intends to encourage and to challenge those churches unto faithfulness and all churches unto faithfulness. Because at this time, the church the churches in Ephesus and Smyrna and so on, we're now looking at second and third generation Christians. The first generation Christians really came to know the Lord somewhere around 35 AD. So we're 60 years downstream. There's a second generation of Christians who are now alive, who are living on the testimony of those who have gone before. And a third generation who are living on the testimony of that second generation. In this case, John is the longest living apostle, so he is the last direct voice, as it were, from Christ. But all the other churches have been relying upon the testimony of a second or third generation. So just by way of really making this clear, you young people... You often have to rely upon your parents' testimony. You have to rely upon the testimony of other adults who have known the Lord. And it's a challenge because it seems so ordinary, especially if your parents are telling you about it. It just seems so usual. It's like, well, I've heard this over and over again. And Christ has a caution to us in something like this. The caution is, pay attention He doesn't have to shout it to make it true. He doesn't have to make it sound fancy to make it true. That's the way of the world. The way of the world is we make it look dazzling and sparkling and really fresh and great when in fact the truth is the truth and it's the thing that shapes our world. It shapes our understanding. And so Christ says, pay attention and do not be distracted. For all of us, while the Lord tarries, sometimes our focus shifts. While the Lord tarries, sometimes we get distracted with things that seem more immediate. While the Lord tarries, we kind of settle in. And we forget that there's far more that's going on spiritually than what it feels like at the time. And so let us pay attention to the fact that just because we're dealing with second and third generation Christians doesn't mean that everything's okay. Not in their circumstances. And we'll see this more clearly as we look at this situation that Smyrna is in. One of the things that Jesus says to all of the churches at all the times is that he is fully sufficient to meet their need. How how would you define your own spiritual need right now? 
What is your spiritual need? Last week, we looked at the church of Ephesus, and their need was to return to a first love, to have their heart sparked again with that passionate love for Christ, to where they would speak to others about his goodness, his loveliness, where they would thrill at the grace given to them in salvation. Today, we're going to be seeing a church that's under persecution. Later on, we'll take a look at the church of Laodicea that thinks they've made it because they've got money and a nice building and everything's going for them really well. We need to always be asking that question. If we think we're okay, we're not in good shape. Never is the church simply okay. There's always some area that we need to grow up in. There's always some place where the Lord wants to both encourage us and challenge us. Here he reveals his need, the Lord reveals his need, or rather his sufficiency, I'm sorry, the Lord reveals his sufficiency when he describes himself as the first and the last the one who died and who is alive forevermore. We'll see how that plays out for Smyrna. Every letter contains a commendation and a rebuke. There are things in every church that are great and good, things that have been well done and which the church needs to be commended for. In our case, one of the... There's a couple of things, as I look back in our history, that we need to be very much commended for, that I think the Lord smiles upon us, and that's this. We've had a very long, sustained Sunday school taking seriously the word of truth and how that works out in our lives individually and how it works out in the lives of those who follow after us. That's a good thing. That's something we're committed to. We see an expansion of that if we take a look at, let's say, the Iwana program, which reaches out to young people, the Vacation Bible School, which continues to reach out to young people. We see that in the various studies that we have going on in our intent to do, our deliberate intent to engage in fellowship, the kind of fellowship where we are encouraged in a faithful walk. I think the Lord smiles upon that. I think the Lord calls us and calls to us and says, I commend you for that. That's part of what discipleship really is. But each and every church has its shortcomings. A point at which the church has a gap. A gap that the Lord looks at and says, I rebuke you for this. When we looked at the book of Ephesus, or rather the letter to Ephesus this last week, Uh, uh, last Sunday we saw that the Lord's rebuke was, you've abandoned your first love. And I raised the question, is that true of us? As we go through each of these letters, let us ask the question, what's our gap? What's our shortcoming? Where would Jesus say, you need to pay attention to this and then look to me as the source of your sufficiency? With every letter, there's also a promise to the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers. That is the word to us, to the one who conquers. There's a promise. 
There is nothing in a church that is not correctable except complete abandonment of the Lord. There's nothing in a church that's not correctable. And so the call to us is always to ask, how do we make a course correction? How do we make a change? And with each of these letters, we're looking at that. Listen to to what the Lord says to Smyrna. First of all, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus knows our specific circumstances. He looks at this church. He looks at Princeville Presbyterian Church. He says, I know what you've been through. This is not a mystery. This is not, this is not something that's hidden from me. I know what you've been through. All of the upheaval that came with the change of denominations, the commitment to try and remain biblical in the face of things that were drifting from biblical convictions. And all the people who wound up departing because they were dissatisfied with how certain things were turning out. Jesus looks at you and says, I know. It's not, it's not hidden from me. It's not veiled. But as he looks at you, he says, I still love my church. I love you. I know your tribulation, he says to Smyrna. I really perceive it. I really get what's going on. Let's talk about that for a second. What is this persecution that Smyrna is faced with? The city of Smyrna was wealthy like the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was basically a coastal town, so there was lots of uh, financial exchange that was going on. And so Ephesus Ephesus was finding its place. Smyrna, however, also a wealthy city, had different circumstances. While Smyrna was on one of the roads that goes into Ephesus, and there's a fair amount of commerce, Smyrna was right in the center of the place of emperor worship. The Romans tolerated all kinds of gods. Now you might say, well, you know, we don't face that kind of thing today. Oh, really? We look at money as a god, entertainment as a god, leisure as a god, fashion as a god. We look at our automobiles as god because we rely upon those things for our life's sufficiency rather than relying upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We look at sex as a god. We look at pleasure as a god. We look at all of these things. We're surrounded with as many idols today as what the Roman world was in their day. And we're seeing the return of other gods. As Christianity is set on the side, there is the infiltration of the Gnostic gods, and there's an infiltration of the Eastern gods, and there's an infiltration of some other mysticism or some other thing. We're surrounded by them. The call to us is a call to faithfulness in the midst of the gods. That's going on in our day. 
But here, Smyrna is right smack dab in the middle of the center of emperor worship. Now, here's what that meant. The Romans would have tolerated all kinds of gods, but the one god that needed to really be recognized was the god of the state. Oh, even more than that, not just the state, the emperor himself. From the days of Julius Caesar on forward, the Caesars were considered to be gods in the flesh, in the culture. And in As you get further along in the history of Rome, those guys who were the emperors took that very seriously. So the center of worship, the center of Caesar worship, was right there in Smyrna. Now, what that meant was annually, annually, every year, the faithful Roman citizen would have to come before uh, the, the temple of Caesar worship, of emperor worship, burn a little bit of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. Just a little bit of incense. Not much, just a little. You can keep your other gods. It's not a problem. Keep your other gods. It's not a big deal. Just burn some incense to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. How much compromise is real compromise? The Christians looked at that and they said, I can't do it. There's only one God. There's only one Lord. I will not trade off my one God, my one Lord, who is Lord over all, who's Lord over the Caesars. I won't trade that off for the sake of burning a little bit of incense, that you can leave me alone. Will we get to that point? The corruption of men is deep. The corruption of people in power can be deep. Are we going to get to that point? What if we did? Or what if there was some other cultural god that was really really being pressed upon us, and we had to somehow nod the head or bow the knee to that God. You know what? I want you to bake a cake for this event, and and so you're going to have to bake a cake for this event. Otherwise, I'm just going to drag you into court, and I'm going to destroy you. That doesn't happen here, does it? Beloved, we're faced with it all the time. And so all they had to do was burn a little bit of incense. Well, the Christians in Smyrna refused to do that. They said, I'm not going to be burning any incense to Caesar. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You can play all the music you want to, King Nebuchadnezzar. Just be assured of this. We're not going to bow down to your God. And God's going to take care of us. And if God chooses not to, we're still not going to bow down to your God because we have a God who is Lord over all. So the Smyrnians were being put to death. They were being tortured. They were being thrown into the arena. They were being put to death. Polycarp, who actually sat underneath of John's teaching as a disciple, was martyred in Smyrna. They were not going to do it at the cost of their life. Take the building away. Take my car away. Take the stuff away. 
but they were threatened with the loss of their life, and they said, take my life away. My God is a God of life. He is the first and the last. He was dead, and he's alive forevermore. Why am I going to bow down to a Caesar who's going to die and end up as dust? So, that was the first part of their persecution. Persecution by the state. Then there was Jewish rejection. The Jewish, the, the Jewish rejection was this. The Jews, the Jews took a look at these converts to Christianity and they said, these people are betraying the ancient religion. They're betraying our Judaism. And so they did their best to stir up state sentiment against the Christians. So the Jews, who should have been affirming their Messiah, were now using this testimony of Messiah in order to torment those who didn't align with their ancient religion. So they had two sources of external persecution, the state and the Jews. So the Lord Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. There will be other churches that may rise up and persecute a church that's faithful to the truth. We need to stand our ground in the face of those things as well. Satan is the wicked accuser of God and God's people. He's always been this way. And in the synagogue of Satan, he had a foothold in, in, among the people who should have had a testimony of their Messiah. May it never be said that Satan's got a foothold in us or in this church so that we compromise the testimony of our Savior. May that not be the case. Now, there's another thing, too, and that's this church faced poverty. It was in a wealthy city, but because it was marginalized, it didn't have a lot of wealth. There weren't lots of wealthy Romans that showed up to this church. There weren't people who had lots of money to sort of sustain it or anything like that. And it's really the case with most churches in most cultures. You know, most churches are poor. They're in poverty. It's only an American mindset that says, you know, we have to have a big church with lots of money and, uh, and a great big flashy building with all these fancy doodads in it. That's an American mindset. Well, it was there in the Middle Ages too, but we've got it worse. And so Smyrna was a very poor church in a very wealthy city, and this is a trial. They had bills, payments. They had to pay taxes. Smyrna's poverty was a persecution. As opposed to Laodicea, which is going to receive a letter later, where Laodicea said, you think you're wealthy. You've got money. You've got all this stuff. You think you're rich, but you know what? You're poor, blind, and naked. The spiritual measure of who we are far outweighs any material measure that can be used. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, God's given us a beautiful building, and we need to care for it. It's a way of giving testimony to the Lord, which is why we seek to beautify it and to keep it beautiful. So Jesus' sufficiency to Smyrna is this. I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who is dead and am alive forevermore. So Smyrnans, if you face death, if you face persecution, I did too. If you face the destruction of your flesh, don't worry. 
I can raise your flesh to life. Fear not the one who can destroy your body, but fear him who can cast body and soul into hell. That's what Jesus said. That's where our fear needs to settle in. Look at this letter. Jesus has no rebuke for this church. Jesus has no rebuke. He told Ephesus, you know, I want you to change some things. You need to get back to where you were at first. But here he doesn't say that at all. He doesn't have any rebuke. You're holding faithful the testimony. You're holding true to me in the face of persecution from two different points outside and different circumstances inside. You're holding firm. I have nothing to rebuke you for. But I encourage you, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Don't fear it. This church held on to its first love in the face of terrible pressure. This church held on to its testimony in the face of terrible pressure. And now they are exhorted to remain steadfast unto death. You are going to be tested. Ten days. You're going to have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Our culture is fast moving in a direction where it's conceivable that the church will end up persecuted. We don't think about things like that generally. We kind of feel like, well, you know, we're in the middle of the heartland. Nobody cares about us. We're pretty safe. Not in an internet world, friends. Not in an internet world. Hold on. Hold on. We are told in Hebrews, we have come to partake in Christ if we hold fast to the end the confidence that we had at the beginning. Our faith spans the whole of our lives. Hold on. We may be tested. We may be thrown into jail. We may be persecuted. They may bulldoze our building. That happens regularly in India and in Indonesia. You know that, right? It's been happening in the Middle East. If they find a Christian church, they just bulldoze it. Hold on. That's the testimony to us. Are we? Are we holding on to the testimony? Are we being faithful? Are we being faithful? From my perspective, we're being faithful. At least we who are here being faithful. There's plenty of people who have professed to be members of this church that just are not here. Is that faithful? They can be, but they're not. Is that faithful? They profess to love Jesus and know Jesus, but they hardly ever darken the door of worship. Is that faithful? Are they holding on? Maybe they need to be rebuked. Beloved, how are we doing? How are we doing? These letters to the churches are to challenge us, 
Now, here's, here's the promise. Holding on you, he, to the one who conquers, he will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus is not saying there's no pain in a first death in this culture. See, he faced it. He was suffering. He suffered for our sins. He died a painful death. A painful death. So he knows that there might be pain in the death that we experience in this life. But he says, there is another death that follows, which is more painful because it's eternal. It's an eternal death. Hold on Be faithful, even if it means pain in this first death. And I will give you life to preserve you from that second death. We need to be conquerors. We need to look forward to conquering in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to encourage others. Because the power of Christ is that he is the first and the last. He's got control over all of the elements of it. Even if we face persecution, it's entirely in his hands, the way that Job's suffering was in God's hands, the way that David's persecution was in God's hands, the way that all of the disciples' persecution was in God's hands. Christ is the first and the last. He is the kingly high priest, dressed in glorious white robes with the golden sash, praying for his church, walking among the lampstands. He is our vision. It's unto him that we are living. Hold fast. And you will enjoy the second, you'll enjoy eternal life, and you will not be touched. You will not be touched by the second death. Life eternal in the presence of this mighty and glorious king. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. That's what we're told through uh, Martin Luther's hymn. Because the one thing that we need is the treasure of Jesus Christ himself. Hold that before your eyes and before the eyes of your loved one. Because he is the one who is sufficient. Beloved, what Christ says to the churches, let us hear. And let us ask the question, how are we doing? Are we holding on? Can we hold out in good times as well as in hard times, can we hold on? Look to the Lord Christ, and he will give you strength and grace to do so. Let's pray together.